Please stand for the reading of God's word. Psalm 62. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths. But inwardly they curse him. For God alone, O my soul, waits in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of lowest state are but a breath. Those of highest state are delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. But put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. This is God's word. Bibles with you. I invite you to keep them open to Psalm 62. We pray together this morning. Father, we ask today as we gather, as we open Psalm 62 together, we pray that you would comfort us by building us up in trust in who you are and what you've done, in your character and nature, in your power and your steadfast love. We pray, Lord, that you would use this ancient poem to edify us and build us up by deepening our affection for you and our trust in you. We ask that you would do these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, like many of you, I learned how to ride a bike when I was pretty little. I can't remember exactly how old. I was probably five or six, seven, something like that. And since nobody intuitively knows how to ride a bike, I had to learn slowly, just like all of you did. It started with training wheels that held the bike upright. And then after a while, I got used to that. My dad took the training wheels off and pushed me along to get me going. After some falls and some scraped knees, I learned how to balance and keep myself going, and before long, I was zooming all over the neighborhood. Now, as an adult, I hardly ever ride a bike. I can't remember the last time I rode a bike. But when I do, even though it's been a long time, I don't have to go back to using training wheels because I practiced it enough as a kid that now my body remembers how to do it without even thinking about it. That happens with other things in life, too, and when it does, we say it's like riding a bike. Things that are learned so deeply that even if it's been a long time, muscle memory takes over, and we're able to do it without even thinking about it. That muscle memory is something that early Christians used to their advantage. Theological training for some new Christians, particularly those who chose to live in monasteries, included the memorization of dozens of psalms as they cooked and cleaned and performed their work. They were required to recite psalms in their entirety and over time memorize more and more of them before moving on to memorize other books of the Bible. In our day, such rigorous and demanding expectations may sound strange, maybe even a little legalistic, but the poetry of the psalms was designed for memorization and repetition as a method of internalizing the truths that are within them. 
They are at the very same time terse and direct while also being full of imagery and artistry. They are succinct and memorable, but they are heavy with theology. Reciting them and committing them to memory are like using the training wheels on a bike. It's practice for the day that those training wheels come off. As we spend time with the Psalms, we build the muscle memory that makes standing on the truths of God's glory and grace an instinct, something that we don't have to relearn when the circumstances in our lives put those beliefs to the test. When moments of temptation come, or crisis, or rejoicing, or just another average day at work, we find that we aren't trying to relearn how to trust God in the moment, but instead we are able to say it's like riding a bike. I couldn't forget how to do it if I tried. The Psalms were designed to help God's people in in this way. They were designed to help us rely more on God. And Psalm 62 helps develop that muscle memory, and it's also a good example of it. David, the king of Israel and the author of many of the Psalms in the Bible, was in some sort of a crisis when he sat down to write this one. We aren't sure exactly what it was that was going on, but there are clues in the psalm itself that that, uh, what's going on may have been an attempt to overthrow him and his rule. We aren't sure exactly, but in the book of 2 Samuel, we do read the story of David's son, Absalom, who plotted against him to steal the throne, and David had to flee from Jerusalem to survive. It was surely one of the darkest and most difficult times in his entire life when he was betrayed by his own son and threatened with execution. It's an experience that surely drove David to face the fact that the only things that he had in life to really rely on are the promises of God to sustain him, to protect him, and then to establish an everlasting throne through him. So in this short song written for the congregation of Israel to sing together in corporate worship, David first preaches to himself in the first seven verses, then he preaches to the people in verses 8 through 10, and then lastly, he grounds his hope in the character of God himself in the final two verses. He wants the people of Israel to instinctually know and stand on the goodness and the glory of God in the midst of a trial, and this psalm is a tool that he's giving them to help them. In the first and largest section, David preaches to himself. He says, "'For God alone my soul waits in silence.'" which really is the whole psalm in a nutshell, in one sentence. It is God alone that David looks to. There is nothing else that he hangs his hope on. Even though there are temptations to trust in other things, as we'll see a little bit later on, David declares that his hope is in God only. He says his soul is waiting, by which he means his whole entire being. He's not fragmented or divided or pulled in two different directions. If you're like me, that sounds remarkable. That's not usually how I feel when I'm facing some sort of crisis or significant decision in my life. The more serious the situation, the more uncertainty I feel creeping into my thoughts. I was recently talking to some friends who are in the process of buying their first house, and they're feeling this same sort of uncertainty and anxiety as they decide what to do. It's a big and consequential decision, and it's hard to confidently go one way or the other because the stakes are very high. We wonder if we should do this or that, if one plan or the other is the right one. We lay awake at night wondering what would go wrong if we chose the wrong path. That is not what's happening in David's mind as he faces whatever it is that's going on in his life. He says that his soul is waiting 
in silence. It's a word that's used elsewhere in Scripture to describe something that is as still and unmoved as a stone. Have you ever heard a recording of a 911 call on the news? Somebody in a crisis situation is calling for help, and most of the time, when people call 911, they are not calm and collected. There's urgency in their call for help, and there is fear that that help will not arrive soon enough. But David says he is waiting in silence. The situation that he's in is probably terrible, a life-threatening ordeal of some form or another that might even mean that the whole, the whole country is at risk of being torn apart. But David is as silent as a stone because it is the Lord that he is waiting for. The writer of Lamentation says that it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Like David, Jeremiah, who wrote the book of Lamentations, endured treachery and abuse and attempts on his life. Yet, through all of that, when everything around him fell apart, God remained steadfast, and so he says that it is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Jeremiah and David were both able to face disaster with trust in the Lord and quietness and peace in their heart. Because as David says in verse 2, God alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I will not be greatly shaken. Twice in this psalm, he calls God a fortress, a stronghold that can withstand a brutal attack. This is one of David's favorite metaphors. The word fortress shows up in the psalms 13 times, and in every single case, he applies it to God. David has lived according to this belief that God is his fortress from his youth. When he was a kid, he went to a war zone where Israel was lined up against the Philistines. And for days, a formidable Philistine warrior had been taunting Israel, saying that if any Israelite was willing to come forward and fight against him and could defeat him, then the Philistines would forfeit. Everyone, though, in the Israelite side was afraid because he was formidable. So they refused to go forward. But David, when he heard this, volunteered to go and fight against Goliath, even though he was just a kid at the time. When he volunteered, people scoffed because he was just a kid. He had no military training. But he explained that as a shepherd, he had fought off wild animals and that the Lord who delivered me, he says, from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. The Lord himself is David's fortress. Several years ago, I got to go and visit the ancient city of Dubrovnik in Croatia. Now, there are lots of interesting things about Dubrovnik, but the most striking thing about that city are the walls that surround it. They are truly impressive. 20 feet thick, 80 feet high in places. They were built to withstand a barrage of cannon fire. The people who lived in that city and live there today live inside a literal fortress. And for 700 years after those walls were completed, no one conquered that city. The people who built it had good reason to fear invasion, and they wanted to build a city that could never be captured. And when they shut the gates at night, they had a sense of security in knowing that several feet of solid stone stood between them and their enemies. David lives in Jerusalem, a city surrounded by strong walls of its own, but he does not point to those walls as the basis for his sense of security or confidence in the face of whatever looming disaster is in his life. He says the Lord is his fortress, and therefore, on that basis, he will not be shaken, regardless of the severity of the attacks he faces, which he points to in verses 3 
and 4. How long will you attack a man to batter him, he asks, like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. As king, David is the one in the high position, and it seems clear here that the threat that he's facing is a rebellion. But David sees himself not as a mighty warrior or a courageous leader. He describes himself here in the poetic language of the Psalms as a leaning wall and a tottering fence. Not the sort of undefeated for 700 years, 20-foot thick walls of a city that's been made into a fortress, but a wall that is already weakened, a wall that might be toppled by a stiff breeze, the sort of wall that offers no defense whatsoever. David does not draw any, not a single shred of confidence from his own strength. Instead, he acknowledges his vulnerability. Just as it was when he defeated that Philistine warrior when he was a kid, he knows that victory and survival itself hang not on his strength, but the strength of God and his kindness to sustain his people. But we know, of course, that it's not just a physical threat that he's facing. He says that his adversaries take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Whatever is going on, as this psalm is being written, it's a situation that is full of deception and duplicity and betrayal. He's being attacked by those he thought he could trust and who revel in their act of treachery. And as they do, David realizes that even the things that he trusts the most in this world are not as reliable as they might seem. It's as though a flood has swept through his life and carried away almost everything. It has ripped out strong and old-growth trees by the roots. It has carried buildings off their foundations and stripped the land down to the bedrock underneath so that now only one thing remains. The flood has distinguished between what is actually strong and immovable and what just looked that way before. So now David stands on the rock of his salvation, the Lord who is his refuge and his fortress, and he is not shaken. He is not swept away into despair or hopelessness. Even though David doesn't say specifically what's going on, it's very plausible, as we know, that he wrote this poem during the coup attempt that was led by his son, but he describes things in a vague way so that the people of Israel who are listening and who will then go on to sing this song long after David's death can apply this psalm in their own lives more easily. Because most people reading Psalm 62 don't know what it's like to be a king that is threatened by a revolution, but everyone knows what it feels like to be betrayed to be threatened, and to be weak. In that moment, David preached to himself, grounding himself in the knowledge that God is his refuge. He waits in silence, unmoved by the chaos that is raging in the world around him, for, he says in verse 5, my hope is from him. He repeats most of the language from the opening two verses, speaking to his own soul, calling God his rock, his salvation, and his fortress, and then proclaiming that he will not be shaken. It's as though the opening two verses are a statement of his faith. Then verses 3 and 4 are the proving ground for his trust in God, where it is put to the ultimate test, where the training wheels really come off. And then verses 5 and 6 show that it has survived, that he really is unshaken. 
so that he is then able to say in verse 7, on God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Salvation does not rest on David's strength. It does not rest on his reputation or his military strategy. It does not rest on anything but God's own strength and his merciful willingness to exert it for David's good. David knows that every other place that we might look for refuge and security is an illusion. He has learned that lesson the hard way facing the treachery of his own family members, and he wants his people to know what he knows. So in verses 8 through 10, he preaches to the people directly. He says, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. At all times, in all situations, put your trust in God. When life is good and things are easy, trust him. When things are bad and it is difficult, trust him. He says, pour out your hearts before him, which is a phrase that only occurs in one other place in the whole Bible. It was a situation of widespread suffering and death when parents watched their children wither with no food to eat. And Jeremiah says to the people in Lamentations 2, Arise, cry out in the night. At the beginning of the night watches, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Pouring out your heart means more than simply saying something with passion. It's as though there is a a little cup that has caught every tear that has been shed over some heartbreaking situation. In Jeremiah's day, it was the tears of parents for their lost children. And in David's life, as he writes Psalm 62, it's probably the same. And pouring it out before the Lord is a plea for him to make right what brought about those tears in the first place. There is temptation, David knows it, there is temptation to look elsewhere for relief and for an answer to those tears, and in verses 9 and 10, David cautions against trusting them, no matter how trustworthy they may seem in our heartbreak. Those of low estate are but a breath, he says, those of high estate are a delusion. Whether someone is on the throne in Jerusalem or living in poverty, they are equal in their ability to stem the tide of pain in this world. Obviously, the king has more of an ability to insulate himself from hardship, but David's point here, as he speaks to the nation, is that even he, from his throne, cannot escape it. People may think, if I just had more power, if I had more agency or control, if I was the one in charge, then I would have the life that I long for. But David says that in the cosmic scales, both the powerful and the weak are lighter than a breath. They have no capacity to stop the pain and suffering of this world from coming. They are both like a leaning wall and a tottering fence. In the same way, he warns against other paths that promise safety and security. Extortion and robbery seem like they will provide relief from a pressing need, but they cannot solve the problem of need itself. Vengeance against enemies is tempting. Everyone knows that, but they they cannot provide real hope, the hope that they do provide David says, is vain. It's empty. A moment from David's own life illustrates how seriously he takes this. 
Before he became king, when Saul, his predecessor, was the one on the throne, David was appointed by God to receive the throne next. And knowing that, Saul became paranoid and he launched a campaign to kill David, who he saw as a threat, even though David never did anything other than support Saul. So David had to go on the run into the wilderness. One night, while David and his entourage were hiding out in a cave, Saul and his army came and camped outside. Saul came into the cave, and David had the chance to attack him, to kill him, and to take control of Israel. His friends all encouraged him to do it. Saul was obviously unfit to be king. God had rejected him, and because he had lost his mind after that, he had gone into a murderous rampage that had put the country at risk. So David's friends thought that the best option was to strike Saul down and to spare the nation any more of his paranoid violence. But David decided not to kill Saul. Instead, he snuck up behind him and cut off just the corner of his robe to later prove that he could have hurt him but didn't. David did not put his trust, his longing for safety, his hope in refuge. He did not put that hope in vengeance and violence. In the same way, he says that if riches increase, set not your hearts on them, in verse 10. For a man who has control of the national treasury, who can build palaces and really anything he wants, this is saying something. It's like hearing a pro athlete or a movie star or a billionaire say that once they reach the very top of their field, they realize that it did not provide them the happiness that they hoped that it would. For David, who has more money at his disposal than he could ever possibly figure out how to spend, for him to say that people should not set their hopes on riches is significant. He knows firsthand that it could not protect him from the pain that he is enduring right now, So he warns against believing that it could. One of the most common temptations for all of humanity throughout all of history is the belief that money can solve our problems and prevent new ones, but Scripture testifies to the contrary. Proverbs 11 says that he who trusts in his riches will fall. Jesus himself warned that the belief from storing up earthly treasures is a vain one because they can be so easily destroyed by moths and rust. And Paul advised that those who have earthly riches should not boast in their wealth nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Scripture warns again and again against putting too much trust in money to do what only God can do because the hope that it provides is hollow. It will eventually reveal itself to be so. No matter how much money someone has, they will still always wonder if things wouldn't be better if they had just a little bit more. As David preaches to the people, he warns them that power and vengeance and riches only provide the illusion of refuge, but that if they instead pour out their hearts before God, they'll find real and lasting safety. And he knows that because he knows who God is. His hope is rooted in what God has revealed about himself. So David establishes the basis for his hope in the final two verses of this psalm. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, he says in verse 11, which is an interesting phrase in Hebrew that can be read a couple of different ways. 
The difference in how to interpret that expression is evident in the different ways that this verse is translated. So depending on what version, English version of the Bible you're reading this morning, it might be phrased a little differently, but there are basically two options. The first is that David is saying something like, God has said something, and I have been thinking about it ever since. What he said has been echoing through my mind for the rest of my life. The second way to read this expression is that God has said one thing, and I learned two things from it. Either one is plausible. Both reflect David's close attention to God's Word. But I think that the second interpretation, the one that's reflected for us in the ESV translation that we use here at Westgate, is closest to David's intended meaning. God has revealed his character in the way that he's treated David himself, and now there are two things that David knows about God. That God is powerful, Literally, that power belongs to him, and that God is loving, that steadfast love belongs to him. These are the two features of God's nature that inform David's hope, his silent waiting on the Lord in the midst of crisis. He's powerful and capable of preserving David no matter the situation, and he is loving. He will use his power to preserve David. If God were powerful, but not loving, we would cower before him and submit to him out of fear. He would look down on us in our need, knowing that he could save us, but indifferent about whether or not he should. So we could not trust him to be a reliable rescuer. If God were loving, but not powerful, he would certainly be a faithful friend, but he could not save those in need. The most he could offer would be advice and well wishes, but not actual deliverance. So again, he would not be a trustworthy rescuer. But David knows that God is both able to save and that he longs to save, that he wields a power that is beyond all comparison, and that he does so in love for his people. And it's because he is both powerful and loving that he is worthy of our trust, unlike everything else. Unlike all the other things that we are tempted by, the hope that we have in God is not hollow because he is actually able to save and because he loves enough to see it through. The lesson that David wants his nation to learn is that hope is only as durable as its object. And throughout this psalm, we are reminded that God alone is unassailable, unrivaled, immovable, and that his love is utterly steadfast. So the poem ends with a warning that God will render to a man according to his work. To the one who spends his life amassing power and wealth and victory over enemies, God will leave him with those as his defenses. But to the one who has put all his trust in the goodness of God himself, God will draw him close into the refuge of his own glorious and gracious presence. That is good news because the greatest threat that we face is not rebellion or betrayal or physical danger. It is something that is much harder to evade than that. David understood that the greatest threat he faced in his life was not murderous enemies, coup attempts, or armies on a battlefield. It was his own rebellious heart. That of a son who scorned his father, rejecting his father's good rule and seeking to claim the divine throne for himself. David knows that the deadliest adversary in his life is his own contemptible and degenerate heart. 
And that while there are many other paths that promise refuge, things like self-justification and power and wealth and reputation, none can rescue him from God's just answer to his sin. He knows that he is not the sort of person who deserves the sort of rescue that he has outlined in this psalm. He does not get, he does not deserve to get welcomed into that fortress. He deserves retribution, the just answer to his acts of violence and lust and the abuse of his power as king. But God's capacity for forgiveness is greater than David's capacity for sin. So when he cast all his hope on the Lord, when he poured out his heart before God, God's answer to him was refuge. And when Jesus Christ went to the cross a thousand years later, David's sin was atoned for. In unimaginable love and power, God's Son carried that sin into the grave. That is the confident hope that we have in God's power and steadfast love. Power and steadfast love that belong to Him. We are tempted when faced with crisis in our own life to divide our hearts, to hedge our bets a little bit, to pray out of one side of our mouths, to trust God with one part of our brain and our heart, while simultaneously thinking that if we just had a bigger bank account or a better job, or if some adversary were defeated, then things would be better. We are tempted to put our trust in our own strength, in our own cleverness. But the cross and the empty tomb testify to us that God's power and God's steadfast love are a stronger fortress and a surer refuge than if we had all the money and power and victory that we dream about. And even if calamity and chaos does follow us all the days of our lives, God is a rock that will never be moved. If we put our trust in Him alone, that calamity and chaos, it may strike, but it can never ultimately defeat us. It can never sweep us away. That is, I'm sure you'll agree, an easy thing to say right now. When life is good, the sun is shining outside. But it's much harder to say and to really believe when darkness eventually falls, and it will fall. So we have Psalm 62, like the training wheels on the bike of our faith. We learn from it how to balance and how to stay upright. Through it, God works in our hearts to strengthen our faith so that we can one day take the training wheels off and have the freedom and joy that come from trusting in God And we learn the muscle memory here in Psalm 62 that will help us in years to come when the thing that tests our faith does come so that we will be able to endure, waiting in silence as David did, unshaken and able to say, God alone is my rock and my salvation. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you today, the rock of our salvation. Even though we endure brutally hard seasons in this life and affliction that tests our faith, your power and your love remain. And we pray that you would write such faith in our hearts that we hold fast to you through all that we face in this world. Help us, Lord, to say that you are our fortress and that we will not be greatly shaken. Train us to trust in you by revealing the depths of your love and your power in the person and work of your Son. We pray these things in his name. Amen.